0: Hello, everyone. It's Nick Walters again with the National Industrial Hemp Growers Digest podcast brought to you by the National Hemp Growers uh, Cooperative. We are really excited to continue to have great content and great guests who are really uh, showing us all kinds of different ways for the many, many uses of industrial hemp. And the more that we talk about fiber and particularly the more we talk about Sustainable building materials and an impact like that—we even get more and more excited about it. So, our guests today are not anything less than what we have had, and maybe even more than what we've had in the past of folks who have who are bringing their expertise uh, to the table in the in the hemp industry. So, um, uh, Dr. Alex summis and Dr. Dan Walzik are are here from Rensselaer Polytech Institute in Troy, New York. If I got that right, at least you got there. it right. and um um, we are really glad you guys are here with us this morning thank you for joining us you're welcome thank
1: you nick for having
0: us thank you so why don't we start off for those that might not be as familiar with rensselaer that might want to just give us a little update real quick on that other than i know they were (coughs) signers of the declaration of independence or things like that i'm not i have to go back and double track my history but um Uh, uh, other than those component pieces, tell us a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about, um, uh, about each of your roles, what you do there um, uh, at the university.
2: Okay, well, why don't I start out Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. It's the oldest technical university in the US. It's also one of the oldest engineering schools started in 1824 uh, in and around Troy. Uh, it was started by Stephen Van Rensselaer, who unfortunately wasn't one of the signers of the Declaration or anything like a, that. Okay. But he was okay. a big landowner, a big Dutch landowner in upstate New York, and the Dutch had settled New York, uh, the Hudson River area of New York, long ago. So he he owned probably about two or three counties worth of land, and he um, basically uh, endowed Rensselaer back in 1824 um, and it, uh, it's become one, you know, one of the leading uh, technical universities, leading engineering schools in the country. And um, so we've, we are primarily located in Troy. Uh, we are on kind of a bluff overlooking the the Mohawk, or sorry, the uh, the Hudson River, where the Mohawk and the Hudson Rivers meet. And um, it's a nice view. We uh, so, we engage in primarily technical research and education. Uh, we have a, a, a nice engineering school. We have a wonderful architectural school, which uh, Alex will tell you about. And uh, let me just start off by telling you about myself, and then I'll let Alex take over. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. Um, after a stint in industry and graduate school, I started at Rensselaer in 1996, and I've been here ever since. Um, most of my research is in manufacturing. And about 20 years ago, I started in synthetic composites, you know, glass, carbon fiber, things like that. And about 15 years ago, I started kind of migrating towards um, natural composites, biofibers, bioresins. Oh. Uh, just because I saw the writing on the wall, you know, uh, peak oil, fossil fuels are being depleted, uh, sustainability, things like that. And I've uh, been involved in making uh, manufacturing processes, new manufacturing processes for biocomposites. And obviously, that kind of uh, requires you to understand where the feedstocks come from, like bioresins. And that Eventually led to my interest in biofibers, and the two strongest biofibers are flax and hemp. And uh, hemp was illegal at the time when I started looking at it. Flax was not, um, but hemp there were a lot of good properties, and uh, not just high strength, but you know resilience, uh, um, you know, uh, well the whole list. And sure. so I. Started looking into the the uh, how fibers were processed, starting with the farmer. You know, having good seeds, good cultivars, um, good soil properties. In fact, we work with uh, Larry Smart at Cornell University, and also uh, Gil, uh, Dr. Gilbert uh, um, uh, Jen, Jen Gilbert Jenkins at uh, SUNY Morrisville, who works on the the um, the, the soil side. So we understand how that's done, but one of the big problems with um, with hemp is in processing. And it's in not beating the the stalks to death mm. so that you damage the fibers while you're trying to get rid of the herd. So people will use the herd, people use the fibers. Um, from a from a biocomposite standpoint, I'm looking for the best fiber possible, not, not beat to death, not, uh, you know, I don't want to see defects um, put in there by the process. So uh, one of the things I'm looking at before I even started my collaboration with Alex was uh, decortication. You know, can you come up with a kindler, gentler process? And then maybe we'll get to talk about it. But we've actually invented a couple of processes that don't beat up the fiber. Oh, cool. and then we're also looking at degumming, uh, kind of automated degumming. And then my collaboration with Alex is really on the application side. We're looking at uh, different ways to use the composites. One of the most promising is is in the rebar used in cement, concrete, and things of that sort. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to let Alex kind of take over.
1: Yeah. Okay. thank you. Thank you, Dan. So, I'm Alex Chamis. I am the Associate Director of the Center for Architectural Science and Ecology at RPI. RPI has um, a few institute-wide research centers, and the one that is dealing with the built environment, uh, specifically, is the Center for Architectural Science and Ecology. Um, My background is in architecture, I was trained as an architect, uh, but uh, when I was doing my PhD at MIT, and actually so did uh, Dan Wolczyk at MIT, uh, I started working with uh, novel construction methods and uh, materials, composite materials, for architecture. Uh, So my expertise is really in automation of construction and in uh, uh, manufacturing processes for building materials um, we joined forces with Dan uh, in 2018, which coincided with uh, the the era where the hemp was legalized in the United States and immediately we developed an intuition about how the CBD market with everybody was talking about how the CBD it was almost like a gold rush right the, CB, the CBD market Uh, is potentially a bubble, because how much CBD are you going to make? And and it's understood that the price per acre for the CBD is higher than any other product, but unless you have enough demand, you will never be able to sustain this kind of uh, pricing. Uh, On the other hand, the building industry is... Think of it very simply. Buildings is the largest thing we make as a a whole in the world. It's the biggest object we make. (laughs) Cities are the biggest thing we make. And we need more of those cities in the future because population is growing. People more and more come to live in cities. There are projections globally about, uh, I don't know, three, four billion people more in the planet in 80 years or something like this. At the same time, we know that the building industry is the number one uh, contributor to climate change. Basically, what is known as the carbon footprint, which is how much dent you put into into the climate because of your activities overall, the number one activity is building our cities and sustaining them. So hemp, we thought of as a material that can feed the need in innovation in the building industry and it's because it's so versatile and it has so many kinds of uses there are so many different applications that we can think of about hemp for hemp that would essentially diversify the portfolio of growers and what they can grow and how they can adapt to seasons and how can they adapt to different climates overall. That's why we started what we call the Seed to City Initiative with Dan Wolczyk, which is basically looking at every process that takes place from the moment you cut the plant until a final product reaches the built environment, a building. So processing of raw material. uh, infrastructure for hemp growers, like uh, processing facilities and things like that. Supply chains, uh, manufacturing processes for products, uh, construction methods for the building industry, and how will those materials perform. So this is overall what overall we're trying to do. And there are several, six or seven different research projects within this initiative that is supported by um, RPI overall. Uh, that we are pushing forward. Some of them were already published, as you know.
0: Wow. Well, it's not boring, is it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do.
0: You're you're, you're not gonna look up one day and say, I wonder if there's something else we could do. You know, you kind of hit on it. One of the things that we think is both a positive and a negative to hemp is the fact that it's got, on the industrial side in particular, fiber herd stalk piece the non-grain part of it is is it will do so many things which is great that it will do these things but it's also can sometimes be a negative because it does so many things you really have to focus to focus in on the one thing right or the two or three things because otherwise you'll chase all these other shiny objects and, and, and it's, it's gotta be even tougher to be able to kind of stay in a lane there of the things. And so when people hear, I know for me, when I first started getting in and looking into hemp, it was almost kind of a little incredulous to me. I was thinking, come on, this stuff's not going to do all of that. You know, I mean, come on, you know, but by golly, you start digging into it and looking at it a little bit and you say, yeah, it really can do all these different things. So Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if 25,000 products is right That's the way that I hear some cheerleaders saying sometimes that that, that's what it is. I'm still a little skeptical on 25,000, but I'm not skeptical on the, there are multiple, multiple opportunities to be able to use it, which we think is a great thing for our grower members. And that's why we call it the cooperative. That's why we are the growers cooperative and not a farmer's cooperative, uh, or said that way because we want people who might have four or five, six, eight acres uh, of, of that they would like to plant, that they can participate in this hemp economy and you don't have to be a third generation, you know, 5,000 acre farm somewhere in production ag in order to, as the only people that can participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we think that this is a great way to bring more people in. So that was my little commercial uh, to be able to throw into the, into the mix on part of that. Well, let's talk um, specifically about the thing that kind of drew us together, unless you want to talk about some other projects that you're doing as well on the research piece, but specifically about the rebar. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's, um, we we hear a whole lot about tensile strength and we hear about, um, I've I've heard about hemp being put into um, uh, concrete and cement as well, just as a way, kind of a, not just hempcrete, but even kind of a better, you know, binder, uh, uh, as well as, as about what it can do. But, um, let's talk a little bit more about this specifically about this rebar piece.
2: Alex, why don't you start with the okay. kind of the origins yes. of you know, the market and the, the uses, and then I'll get more into sure. the technical side. How you actually make it
1: cool. Okay. So, um, we already knew that hemp is a, has a tensile strength that is uh, comparable to steel by weight. It means that if you have the same the same weight between a, a steel uh, uh, bar and a hemp bar, they will have the same tensile uh, strength, uh, and this has been proven for a very long time. Uh, so so is with other natural fibers like uh, jute. Um, what we are looking at, and, and it has actually become very apparent in, many, in in recent years, is that infrastructure in the country is aging, and we know that. Uh, there was a, a a recent talk by President Biden that stresses how important it is to update. If you look at if you look at infrastructure, a lot of it is made out of concrete and steel rebar. And one of the reasons that if it's probably the most significant one why it is aging fast is because the steel in the concrete uh, composites um, becomes rusty, corrodes. And because of that, it delaminates from the cement. And because of that, it ages prematurely. The concrete could last forever in there. Uh, So the Association of Civil Engineers of the United States calculate, a, I think, a 40-year lifetime for a a concrete is the safety margin. And of course, in reality, this exceeds by a lot what happens in the real world. But we often see things like accidents, bridges collapsing, or having to demolish bridges to replace them uh, with uh, new ones and so on. I saw on the news one yesterday actually a bridge somewhere that was replaced by another one with the you know the dynamite thing so we came to we started thinking about a way we can encapsulate hemp in a thermoplastic material this is the same kind of material that you have in your plastic bottles so and because plastic is not is is non-corroding it's not going to corrode we are thinking that we can extend the lifetime of concrete the preliminary studies we have is like around threefold so if it if if it would last 30 years this would last 90 years so that essentially gives you uh, a tremendous benefit in the investment you have in uh, in concrete because concrete is uh, is a is a bad material for the planet it's basically one of those that uh, contribute most to the carbon footprint that we were discussing,
0: sure. earlier. a necessary evil, almost right? Exactly.
1: Mm. Uh, and although there is a lot of research about creating alternative in, uh, alternative ingredients for concrete, which are very good, still the idea of having a cement-like material is not going to go <laughs> away anytime soon. So, by just replacing the corroding rebar with something that is more, will will extend the lifetime. And because the non-corroding rebar is a is a market globally that has the it is like i think it's 500 billion dollars the the market the size of the market globally and i think it's 250 billion in the united states probably you can't grow enough hemp to cover this market demand but it is so vast that it is a it is we think it's a possible it's a good opportunity to to put money into, to create a product that can replace stainless steel or other non-corroding rebar that we have today. Exactly because the building industry needs to reduce drastically its carbon footprint.
0: So are you are you saying that that even if I didn't care about the sustainability piece, <clears throat> let's just say that that's not oh, something yes. I, don't, I don't even care about, okay? Yes. yes. Um, uh, there still is just a practical investment component to say, why would you invest in something that's going to corrode in 35 to 40 years instead of something that is not going to corrode in 85 to 90 years? I mean, yeah,
2: there's an an equally strong economic argument. I mean, despite where you lie on the political spectrum, you know, some people just want the economic argument. Some people just want the sustainability. There's both in this case. And so that's why it's compelling no,
1: and they, actually, this is what we're trying to do with all the projects. Like, we try to to find opportunity to... Like, our goal is to basically drive the carbon footprint of the building industry down because we believe it is important to do that, especially because the population is growing on the planet and the resources are limited. But this is not going to happen unless there is an incentive that is other than the sustainability incentive. And I think it's equally strong as Dan was is uh saying.
2: Yeah. So so on the on the technical side uh, Alex was very clear about you know there's a, there's an economic and sustainability argument for doing what we're doing. Then you have to get down to the details, how are we actually going to do it? And so there's a lot of technical challenges in doing this. Um, the, you know, first off is where do you get your raw materials? You get, to get you have to get high quality Uh, hemp uh, fiber, Um, and that starts at the farm, the cultivars, and then how it's processed, how it's um, also prepared for use in a a composite material. So those are all things that we're trying to address. Some people have already addressed certain technical issues, others have not. So we have to kind of piece together what the gaps are and then uh, work on those. Uh, on the processing side, we have some innovative. Without getting in too much into the technical or the 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 concept, which is uh, we are pursuing IP on. Um, we're basically taking the raw material in a, a very convenient form and using a p- process called pultrusion, wh- where you pull materials through basically a set of dies and. Actually, create the material uh, very relatively rapidly. And one of the innovations we have is we're looking to do it on site. So, if you look at regular rebar, uh, it oftentimes is bent on site and then tied together with clips. Um, and you know, this is it. It can be done because it's steel, and you can bend it. But uh, Alex and his student long ago came up with a concept where we would not just manufacture it on site, but also bend it on site. Mm. This is facilitated because thermoplastics, as you know, you can remelt and they solidify back into their original form. And so you're doing kind of that thing, you're heating it up or it's pulling it pulled out hot and then you bend it and let it cool. And if you are smart about it, if you use automation, you can actually bend it to the shape that would have, an engineer has designed it on the computer, and uh, there's a lot less, um, a lot less work for the uh, workman to put it in place in the shape it needs to be before the uh, form is put up and the concrete's poured around it. So that's kind of, you know, all of those technical details of, of actually making the material from the The raw, you know, free feedstocks, solidifying, you know, bending it, solidifying it, all of those things is is what we're in the process of addressing. Some of the, some of the, I think we have concepts for pretty much everything, and we've been kind of a piecemeal addressing each of the technical objectives, and uh, you know, hopefully soon within a year or two, we'll be at a point where we can actually. Demonstrate these materials and actually start testing them, because even if you can make it, the the civil engineers, the architects, and the construction people are all always say, "Well, does it really work?" Like you're you're touting. So that's you know that's part of what we're doing. When you do calculations and you do predictions, it looks really good, and we just have to prove that out. So, so do you? You have then kind of your own. Since Dan, you're the one that does the making, right? Of the of Well we do we both do making, but I'm um, I I do th- I focus on the engineering to actually I got you. get get the performance you want, you know, not just the of the materials, but also of the manufacturing system, how the throughput, the okay. quality, things like that.
0: And so is that more
2: of like a a mobile
0: unit after you've already decorticated? And or is are you talking about decorticating And processing at the doing. Oh no, no, the
2: decortication would take place elsewhere. Already took and actually preparing the 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 materials for insertion into the machine would have to be done at a maybe at the same facility. And then we then we would take the raw material, which is in a very convenient form, probably on a roll, and it goes into the machine and then we use it on site.
1: So we have uh, basically, we have two modes of operation there. Uh, there is a preform, which is the the non-solidified version of the rebar, which is pretty much, it looks more or less like a rope, like the way we understand the rope. And then there is a process uh, that can be used for mass production of pieces that are the same in a factory. There is no need to do anything on-site bending or anything like that. And then there are other processes for more detailed work or for work that requires custom shapes and so on that would happen on site. This is an argument that adds to the other two that we had, the sustainability argument and the economic argument because of prolonging the lifetime. That is an argument about the way you simplify the logistics of installing a rebar on a sure. site. Because imagine the truckloads loads that are usually there and the cranes lifting. Instead of that, you have uh, bobbins or reels of of rope that come to site, and they are fed into a machine that is the size of a car, let's say. And then that processes the rebar and makes it into the specific shape and the specific length you want based on a computational computer drawing. So you, you feed it a computer drawing and rope, and it gives you the rebar uh, shape and size that you want for the specific application.
0: Wow. So that lets an architect get even groovier and groovier with the way that she wants to design the building, right? Yeah, it actually,
1: it makes it, it doesn't make it more expensive than to do any other shape. That's the, that's the good thing about it. I mean, there are so many other things. right? If you architects, we can become very groovy if we want. The point is that this is always a, there is an added cost always to that, and this is a technology that reduces that uh, cost because time-wise and complexity-wise, it is the same for the machine to produce a straight piece than to produce any shape.
2: That's very Alex. Cool. I didn't know you were so groovy. <laughs> I was. <laughs>
1: Groove my middle name. Uh, Dan, and,
0: and, uh,
2: there must be i I'm,
1: I'm glad we get to know each other a The things
0: you learn, huh? The things you thats exactly yeah. right. <laughs> Tune in next week for even more info between Dan and Alex. They, uh, understand more about this journey together. <clears throat> no, but I mean, I mean, we should get out. Those of us that are not in construction, building material every day, mm-hmm. right? That's not the thing. We shouldn't. We should move out of our mind just the concrete slab, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. not what we're talking about here. We're talking about all the different ways that not only that you can do the production, of course, you know, that certainly fits back into the carbon footprint, please. Mm-hmm. We believe that the real way to go forward and, and, and some of the decortication facilities and things that we are heavily investigating, getting closer and closer to actually bringing on board, I think it's going to be regional decortication facilities all over the country. Okay. And it has to be, and and they're going to be, and they're going to be owned by different groups to do different things. And if your technology will let you change the knobs and the bells and the whistles to produce on the output, what is needed for that contractual agreement or for that particular usage, then that's where the long-term flexibility is going to be able to be for that, that facility. So if you're making hemp bricks or we're making hempcrete or we're making textiles or we're making biochar or we're making yes. whatever it is we're making on the back end if that if that facility that that um a decortication facility can be adjusted based off of what needs to come out on the back end of that you know then that's going to be the, the yes. right way the best way long term to do because not only just the logistics of the of the transportation costs are silly uh, to think about having to add to it, but you're totally negating the whole carbon footprint yes. if I've got to go truck it, you know, 500 miles somewhere else from where it's been grown. And so, um, I think all these pieces coming together really kind of make this really even, even much worse.
1: And one of the one of the things that I wanted to point out here is um, with what uh, Dan is developing, he's. Um, decortication machine that produces a higher quality fiber. He also has in the back of the mind that this is not a, you know, unapproachable technology. This is a technology that the growers can have access to uh, immediately. And we we have been talking about this. Although there are many different kinds of business models for growers of hemp, we think that If they have access to equipment that is simple to use, that produce, that they can process their own stocks, instead of selling the stocks, they sell the fiber with not a lot of time and logistics added to their overall processes, they can add a lot of value to their per acre uh, profit. And this is a model that is like um, we think of it as edge manufacturing, like manufacturing on the spot sure. instead of centralized. Sure. And one of the goals of the C2C initiative is to enable farmers, independent of the size they have, if they are new to the market or if they are already there for a very long time and they have a lot of land, to be able to increase the quality of product they sell to the next step down the chain.
2: Yes. There's, I mean, there's different models. One is with a co-op. Let's, you were talking earlier about maybe a grower with five, six acres. Uh, Obviously, they're not going to invest in decortication hardware. So you get a co-op model where you get a lot of small farmers who will go to that facility. And, uh, or you have a large farmer um, that you know, with maybe thousands of acres, that could justify uh, investing in decortication, maybe even degumming uh, equipment. Um, one of the, th- the 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 hardware that we're focusing on is not a cure-all. For example, there are a lot of decortication technologies out there. There's a uh, Ch- Chinese decorticators, European, um, and you know, if you look at the patent record, you know, the the leading. Decortication designs were coming out of the U S before that was shut down for reasons we won't, you know, go into, um, but the decorticator that we're looking at is really for high end fiber. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of the decorticators now, uh, are very good at doing it, separating herd and fiber quickly. Um, and in the process, they damage the fiber, but for a lot of the markets, that's fine. The herd will go towards maybe hemp creed, the fiber, even though it's damaged might be chopped up into small, um, pieces and used in a variety of different products. Where what we're interested in is primarily the high end where you mm. have either long continuous fiber or, or that's undamaged or short fibers that are still undamaged. And those are used in high end products like yes. rebar. Like uh, other some of the other things that Alex is doing, mm-hmm. SIP panels, which he'll talk yes. about, and and sure. even use it in uh, other industries such as aerospace or or automotive. I'm not saying you you'll find a hemp wing at a Boeing, but um, but you know you you may see natural fibers used in certain um, you know certain products within the aerospace industry. So anyway, just a little bit more background. No, no, no. I think it's all
0: terrific. Right. And and that's what makes all this exciting. That's what makes all this fun is because we all kind of, as an industry, get to learn these things. And like I I tend to say, the the whole industry has been in a Rip Van Winkle mode for, for 75 years. And so everybody kind of coming to, you know, waking up and getting, you know, on board about what we'll do. That's why projects and things like what you guys are doing really excite a lot of us to be able to think i never even thought about it for that you know or mm-hmm. I never and so if it's a way then to know that that the co-op as a model as one of those models is end up being purchasing you know this equipment so that we understand not just purchasing the equipment for so that the grower doesn't have <laughs> to do that investment on her own or his own but it's also understanding how that processed um, fiber is going directly to someone who's ready to buy it. OK, and, and so if all of that whole chain can be can, can be closed together in one big loop, that's part of what we do every day is, is trying to move that move that ball down the court. So it's terrific piece. Uh, well, tell us, uh, um, we'll wrap up here and, and let you guys get back to uh, uh, whatever it is that you do, do, do all day, which seems to be a whole lot. Um, uh, uh, any kind of final kickoff thoughts or things that we ought to pay attention to or things that, that we ought to be um, watching besides watching the good work that you guys are doing?
2: Alex, you want to
1: start? Yeah, there are a couple of um there are a couple of things. Um, sometimes it takes like innovation in uh, one small thing, like for example uh, a rebar technology, to to begin a chain reaction that mm-hmm. would that would uh, incentivize other things to happen. And the example that we have that is a very similar one, and it comes from RPI in its tradition. RPI participated in the. Technology that made uh, one of the first steel cable bridges. Mm. So, and it was actually—it's very proud because it has participated in the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, which was the largest steel cable bridge, bridge of its time. Of its time. It's a bridge, right? But it's also part of infrastructure for the for the country. And it and it was the technology was what actually, it was a machine that was able to weave together steel wires to make the cables. And a second machine that was able to place the cables in the correct way. The funny story about this is that prior to this technology, the bridges were were made with hemp tow ropes because it was a strong natural fiber. So hanging bridges before steel were made out of hemp. So oh, back 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 then it was replacing hemp with steel, that enabled infrastructure all over the country to happen, and develop rapidly. Today at RPI we are doing the reverse. We are trying to remove steel from the concrete structures and put back hemp, because we have realized that the carbon footprint and the longevity of these structures are jeopardized by by steel and we can only imagine what would be the the you know the the fire that is going to catch if this rebar becomes a common place for use in the in the country and all over the world so it is a technology that is a point technology but we think that it can that it can uh, you know expand to many other things and it can have implications at so many different levels that's why we are uh, Hopeful that it is uh, going to sustain the hemp industry in a way. Um, that's that's on my
2: end. It's terrific, terrific. Um, on my side, uh, I've talked with a lot of people who are in the hemp industry. They're very passionate, and uh, but the one thing that the common theme that keeps coming up is that the maybe it's over, not overlooked, but is the, pr- the problem of processing. Um, people don't realize, okay, you grow it and I know what I, where I wanna use it, but how the heck do I get it from the farmer to a, a, a form where the engineer wants to use it in a product? And it's, over, it's always overlooked. There are people who are addressing it, but there's not enough effort put in, at say at the national level on, Processing. How to get? How to automatically and quickly get stalks, hemp stalks, processed? You separate herd, you separate the fiber without damaging it, and then you you uh, degum it and uh, do it in a sustainable way, where you're not having toxic waste or or outputs to water streams and to. Um, so that's that's something that is critical um, and can and is solvable. It's just that uh, research and effort has to be put into that. And and, then it has to be incentivized for people to actually build equipment. I'd love to see the equipment built here because with manufacturing, a lot of uh, the manufacturing has gone overseas. Sure. And it used to be that when we had manufacturing here, the equipment manufacturers were here too, so the know-how on how to build these machines, the automation, resided here as well. Since all the production is gone, the companies that used to build those machines, they're they're having no luck selling to the Chinese or the Indian, you know, Indians, or so they go away, and then we lose that technology. So we have an opportunity here where, you know. I won't say it's the processing is at its infancy, but there's a lot to do where we can, if we play our cards right and put in the right investments, reinvigorate a lot of the production machinery to support the future processing that will be done either at the farm or at a co-op to supply the growing need, growing markets for... for, uh, um, for hemp-based products,
0: heck yeah! Uh, well, you know, it's just like everything else. It's nothing that time and money won't solve, right? Yeah. And, and so it. Um, uh, but I mean, it, 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 because but realizing where we're trying to get to, we don't we don't want to. It's not just about creating the equipment, but it's also how do we adjust and tweak and do other things as we learn more things about what the end process needs to look like. What does the end product need to be? And for somebody to say, you know. No, 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 I would really purchase it this way instead of that way. Somebody has to go back and mess with the knobs and the bells and the whistles to be able to make it do that. And if that technology is not an ongoing iterative process to be able to work through all of that, because the technology is really in some other place that they're not sharing what that <laughs> what that uh, process looks like, we end up kind of shooting ourselves in the foot over the long term, I think is 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 a part of what happens too. So Uh, I agree, that's uh, really awesome, great stuff to do. So, uh, oh yeah,
1: go ahead. I wanted to compliment uh, what uh, Dan was saying, but actually quoting Dan, um, he has told me, which I find it a very, very poignant uh, observation. The fossil fuel industry has had a 100 years, 120 years to develop technologies, that would take the, extractor, the extracted material from the earth to take it into whatever refined synthetic uh, fuel or oil or plastic we have today. It's not an immediate process. Like if we were 100 years ago and we, were, we had in our hands raw oil, we could do certain things with it. We could use it as tar, we could put it on the, on the roads, we could put it in our lamps maybe, kerosene, things like that, but nothing like the value it has today because of all the processing that has taken place and the chemistry that has taken place over these years. So the, we should think of the hemp industry as a similar thing. This is a raw material that is extracted. It's a renewable material, which is very important for the new age that we are in right now. And we need investment into making this renewable material give us its maximum value. So the fiber should be the best fiber it can have, either by engineering the plant, which can happen, or more simply by investing in technologies that extract this fiber in a way that makes quality. This will, this will give us higher-end products, higher-value products at the end of the day, at the very towards the building industry that will give a, a an economic benefit and will, will have growers who want to invest in this kind of technology. We, we need to treat hemp as a raw material that needs further development in order to output its highest value.
0: All right. That's a great way to end yeah. <laughs> our conversation and our thank our you. talk today, to be able to do this. Dan, Alex, thank you guys so much for joining us on the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest, our podcast sponsored by the National Hemp Growers Cooperative. One of the areas that we are always focused in, uh, and focused on is renewable energy as well. And so we want to do a great shout out to the, um, international biomass conference that is being taken place. Um, uh, March 14th through the 16th in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, you can go back and and uh, go through your favorite search engine to find the International Biomass Conference and learn way more about what's going on there, uh, about the different agendas and the different world. We're, we're gonna be there. We're glad to be part of a a one of the sponsoring organizations um, for that conference um so we will certainly want to give that shout out if you want to know more about us and about what we're doing at our at the co-op you can go back to national hemp co uh, co-op.us no dashes just it looks like coop um uh, and and learn more about us and get on our on our mailing list and, and learn more about the good things that we're doing dan alex thank you for the work that you guys are doing and we really look forward to following you and learning more about the the new things that are going on from the Seed to City Initiative, as well as other things that, that you guys are doing at RPI. Thank you. Thank you, Nick.
1: Thank you. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.